0: to another episode of The Rage Podcast. My name is Karis Fox and I'm your host for this season. In case you missed our latest release, we are stepping into a new theme for season five, which is on environmental justice. I'm joined today by guest Dr. Nadia Kim, who is the author of Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in LA. A quick plug for iRise and something to hold in your calendar is that on April 12th, we are hosting an event which we are calling A Call for Climate Justice. And this day is going to consist of a series of mini teachings taught by Dr. Nadia Kim and In FOIA of Green Latinos and it's really going to hone in on topics that are truly important to climate justice. So if you would like to learn more or register, the RSVP link and information to learn more about a call for climate justice will be available in the description box below. As stated, I am joined today by Dr. Nadia Kim. And Dr. Nadia Kim is a professor of Asian and Asian American Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Her research focuses on U.S. race and citizenship injustices concerning Korean slash Asian Americans and South Koreans, race and nativist racism in Los Angeles, immigrant women activists, environmental racism and classism, and comparative racialization of Latinx, Asian Americans, and Black Americans. Throughout her work, Kim's approach centers neo-imperialism, transnationality, and the intersectionality of race, gender, class, and citizenship. Dr. Kim is an author of the multi-award-winning Imperial Citizens, Koreans and Race from Seoul to LA, of Refusing Death, Immigrant Women, and the Fight for Environmental Justice in LA, which chronicles the embodied, emotive, and citizenship politics of Asian and Latina immigrant women's fight for cleaner air in LA and of award-winning journal articles on race and assimilation and on racial attitudes. Dr. Kim has also long organized on issues of immigrant rights, affirmative action, and environmental justice, some of which she has incorporated into her research. She and her work have also appeared internationally on National Public Radio, Southern California Public Radio, Radio Korea, and local TV news, and in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Korea Times, Nylon Magazine, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and elsewhere. I really enjoyed sharing this space with Dr. Nadia Kim and recording this episode. I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure that you will too. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and dive into the episode. Now as we know the introduction, the title for the first section under the introduction was Fighting for Breath in the Other LA. And I had watched one of your lectures in which you talk about how LA is known as the city of Hollywood, but it's also the city of oil. And it contains one of the biggest ports in North America. And these Mm -hmm. uh, ships that come to the ports are run on diesel, which the products that from those ships are then launched onto the trucks, which are run on diesel, which go through the neighborhoods. And I just really liked that connection that you built.
1: L.A., when people think of it, they think of, uh, you know, Hollywood, they think of um, fashion, they think of celebrities like Kim Kardashian and all of that. But what people need to understand is that just like any city, uh, global city, especially in the United States and across the world, is that it has definitely become a neoliberal city. And by that, which I think is important to set up in the beginning, is that um, it's a city affected by the U.S.'s and many other nations' choice to basically genuflect to the market, right? Whereby our number one concern is not to provide social services, social welfare, meaning like do everything in our power to create the strongest, most resourced educational health housing, right? uh, Systems, but to basically, um, ensure that corporate and banking America, right? And across the globe through global capitalism are most prioritized and are most resourced, right? And we've often called them the 1%, right? Um, Versus the rest of us in the 99%. And I think that is still a really apt descriptor, they don't have to pay any taxes. They get to hide all their money. They don't have to give back to society. Uh, and because of that, Los Angeles is subject to these immigrant and communities of color that live next to highly polluting industry, highly polluting um, goods movement apparatus. And what I mean by goods movement apparatus is what you were describing, which is that we don't make things anymore in the United States. We're no longer a manufacturing economy, right? So that means that everything that's made that you and I buy, Keras, has to be shipped here for the most part. And where is it shipped from? From very far flung nations like China and other manufacturing countries, right? So that Uh, emits an incredible amount of pollution to think about. We have to ship everything from food to cars to electronics and clothes here. Right. And those cargo containers run on diesel, as you mentioned. Then they're put on trucks and trains that run on diesel to go to the targets, car dealerships, Walmarts, Costco's, right? Best buys, not just here in California and L.A., but also across the nation. and. Where are most freeways built? Well, often they're built in and through and next to communities of color in terms of rail yards, right? The trains that run on diesel that are also carting all this goods movement, you know, they're next to and in and through communities of color. So when I was talking about a polluting industry earlier, I was also referring to oil refineries. Right. As you mentioned, L.A., unbeknownst to most people, is the largest urban oil field in the nation. Right. And what do you need also not just to make anything, but what do you need to transport all of these goods we were just talking about? You need oil. Right. And we're talking about uh, diesel forms of oil. It almost seems like it's this perfect storm of environmental racism and classism against Black, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander and indigenous communities, depending on where we're talking about. Insofar as not only are they hyper contaminated right, by these hazards, But then these communities tend to be disadvantaged by way of white supremacy. So they're disadvantaged in terms of they were racially segregated in the first place by white supremacy, right? Mixed with the market taking advantage of racism in these communities. They're segregated. Therefore, they don't receive the same um, benefits or social services. Right. They don't have the same educational and labor market systems. And then they don't have the the access to adequate health care. So that is the L.A. where they're fighting for breath. Right. That is the other L.A. that we need to know about under this broader banner of neoliberalism that essentially genuflex at the altar of profit, capital, white supremacy and also uh, doesn't regulate. Right. I mean, that's one of the ways they uh, basically cater to uh, corporate and banking industries. Right. Is that you just. Let them do whatever they're going to do, even if it causes huge financial crises, uh, even if it causes uh, environmental racism and classism and health crises. Uh, you just do it anyway, because that is the neoliberal decision that was made starting in about the 80s.
0: There are so many different directions I want to go. But in watching <laughs> uh, an additional lecture of yours, you had talked about the racist monuments, which were the highways,
1: and yeah. I have never
0: heard it framed that way before. Mm -hmm. And the minute you said it, I was like, ah, it makes sense in the context. of
1: I read that from an investigative journalist, um, last name, I believe Fleischer. And I found that to be such an insightful and really provocative, but accurate statement of what Racism is right. And the problem is, is that when we think of racism, we automatically go to housing or uh, violent, you know, COVID-19 racism or the carceral state and the police. Right. Uh, and uh, deportation and caging. We go to that immediately. Right. But what we don't go to is the way in which all of these um urban planning, spatial city planning decisions are made that those are at the core of racism as well and white supremacy. And if we don't understand that, then we're missing a huge part of our understanding of racism and white supremacy, right? Because a connection we could also make to the current global pandemic in terms of COVID-19 is that why is it that mostly, um, African-American, Latinx and Pacific Islander communities were contracting COVID-19 and being hospitalized for it and then dying from it. Right. Well, it's because their bodies were already completely compromised by disproportionately suffering environmental contamination. Right. So people who are immunocompromised are the ones that have been dying right in disproportionate numbers. So, um, you know, when we think about freeways and where they're placed and not just even where they're placed. Right. Um, And and I'll I'll elaborate on that in a moment. But one of the fights that in Los Angeles, predominantly Latinx, but definitely, you know, mixed community of color dealt with was La Montaña, which was the freeway rubble from the massive Northridge earthquake in California. I think that was like around 1994. And where do they decide to dump all the rubble of the destroyed freeways? Right. They decide to put it in this South L.A. neighborhood. Right. Predominantly people by people of color, many of whom are unauthorized immigrants, many of whom are working class. Right. And so, you know, that's the other way we can think about the way in which freeways are ultimately among the the most racist of racist monuments. Right. Not just Confederate uh, soldiers and and officials. Yeah.
0: What I like learning, well, like and hate at the same time about environmental justice is like it makes you think about things that you see on a daily basis in a way that So, like when you were talking, I was even thinking about this cup. Where did this cup come from? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the process of it getting to me in this space? Mm-hmm. And it's infuriating because you realize how much how many of these from the highways to the cups we're using to the shirts we're using are evidence often of injustice, evidence of often the abuse that's happening to people's bodies. And I think that pairs well with something that you had just said um, about LA and the oil refineries, and just it—how much pollution is there being unbeknownst to most people?
1: Yeah, and just to speak on that, you know what's interesting is, and also when I'm just talking to other Angelinos or my students, it's interesting because I'll ask them, do you notice the oil drilling, those cranes that go up and down sometimes when you're driving somewhere or near foothills or, you know, in the, in, in, in West LA area and, and outside of it. And they'll say, oh yeah, you know, I do, I do recall seeing those. And, or I'll say, when you look out over the ocean horizon, do you see those islands that look kind of pretty and cute with palm trees, you know, far away. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, those are just pretty decorations to cover oil rigs. Right. Kind of the way that we cover cell phone towers with those fake looking trees. Right. And so it's there, but it's not there. Right. And so that's why most people don't know that L.A. is the biggest urban oil field. And it's also the city of oil. And, you know, they people obviously know that L.A. would not be Uh, feasible without a network of octagonal freeways and freeway overpasses. Um, But very few think about them as racist monuments. So, for example, you know, in earlier environmental justice struggles, um, the building of of a freeway called the 105, um, you know, the state Decided to build it through a Black American community, right? And it was because of their uh, social justice resistance, right? Their fight for environmental justice that they did reroute the freeway a little bit. But that's one victory after decades and decades of essentially the state, uh, you know, in. Uh, cahoots with industry, just really being able to put those freeways wherever they wanted or putting oil refineries and toxic incinerators and oil pipelines wherever they wanted. Um, And basically they destroyed communities of color that were already tenuous, right? Because they're already uh, segregated um, and under-resourced and underserved. So, you know, these All the things that we kind of drive by or we purchase or we kind of use to live our day to day lives. Right. Like even uh, phones and laptops uh, and tablets. Right. That was the backbreaking work of either mostly Asian and Latina immigrant workers and refugees in the Silicon Valley, or from the backbreaking work of workers in China who are so demoralized and disheartened by being robotic and being asked to live as if they're robots and produce millions of chips and parts and goods in a very short amount of time that, you know, they started committing suicide, right? And, you know, this is still something that hasn't really been resolved or dealt with. And so in some ways, what environmental justice is asking all of us to do is not take anything for granted and to always kind of look beneath the surface of a very racially unequal and consumptionist based society. Right. I
0: think that's a great
1: segue into your book and also the
0: people that you worked with. Something that is interesting is a bullet point from your lecture had said, Can university theorists be too race focused and street theorists or not? And I liked Mm -hmm. in this presentation that you really highlighted that not everyone credited racism as being the main issue. Mm -hmm. It was the issue of class, gender. And we see all these intersections. And so, would you be able to kind of expand? on how the intersections of race, class, gender, and citizenship impact the conversation of environmental justice and the impacts on the women that you actually worked with.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, to explain that comment, it came from my finding that to my surprise, right, based on what kinds of expectations I had as a researcher, uh, I thought most of the uh, activists, both the AAPI and the Latinx activists would cite environmental racism because that tends to be in the scholarship and in a lot of organizing that tends to be the main focus, which is that uh, even middle class communities of color often experience more uh, pollution and contamination than even working class, lower income white communities. OK, um, and given that, uh, obviously, uh, Latinx immigrants have experienced a great deal of nativist racism and have been subject to the carceral system of of detention, deportation and surveillance um, and exclusion from the border, et cetera, which has been highly militarized, you know, I just was surprised, right, um, that they made a conscious decision to say, we want to make our political claim that it's poverty, right? It's class inequality um, that explains most of this hyper-contamination in our neighborhoods right and it's not to say that they didn't see racism as also part of the picture they absolutely did it's just that they chose to see class uh, inequality as what was sort of texturing and shaping the racial inequality that was also going on there and I think part of it I mentioned has to do with in Mexico, the main injustice they suffered was also class injustice, right? They were part of the dominant mestizo population. None of them were indigenous or. Asian or Afro-Mexican. Right. Um, and, uh, also they're segregated, hyper-segregated, right. From white America, except in, you know, certain instances in LA, um, and usually groups of color who interact the most with white America are the ones that report the highest rates of racial discrimination. Okay. So it's often in like these, um, middle-class or professional settings, educational settings. Right. Um, Also, because I think it was a conscious decision that they felt that class would be more expansive and broad. Right. Um, And and could include, uh, obviously, you know, impoverished whites and could include people who maybe don't see race and racism as the main sort of enemy. Right. Um, Whereas if you kind of base it on it's it's all about um, whites versus communities of color then they didn't i don't think they saw that as politically expansive and inclusive okay so i do think it was also a calculation right so in that sense what i realized is that in all of our research findings and in all of our academic work overwhelmingly we could see the centrality of race right to environmental injustice and um we can see that a lot of uh social movements also really are organized around environmental racism, right? Um, And then environmental classism is next to it, but not necessarily as central. Uh, But when we look from the experience, uh, the everyday experience and the embodied suffering that these Latinx immigrants, and especially Latina, most of them were women, go through, it also makes a lot of sense why they would really focus on the fact that we're a concentration of working class and poor people, right? Poor immigrants. And so rather than focusing maybe on, well, what is more accurate? What is more correct? Right. Especially we scholars like to do that. Right. And, and I, obviously there's purchase in that. I understand why we do that, but maybe we could think about what and how are the conditions Right. And the calculations that, you know, prompt people to decide that I really want to focus, you know, on class injustice as the political beast. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to focus on, uh, you know, nativist racism or white supremacy or whatnot. Um, and I think that's more formative in a way that helps bridge scholarship and community engagement on the ground. Right. It almost helps us see that we come from different vantage points, but by understanding why, how and in what ways that manifests, I almost think that helps build university and community partnerships. Right. And we can kind of learn to speak each other's language and see through each other's worldviews. And so I think that's a more important um, consideration. Right. Now, to speak to your issue of gender um, and citizenship, you know, I think it's important to state that it wasn't that the AAPI and Latina activists said that patriarchy is the reason why we experience this disproportionate pollution. They really said it's either racism or it's classism, but they were very aware of how their gendered uh, positioning. And their gendered socialization um, was affecting the political dynamics in play as they tried to fight for their lives and for cleaner air and better health against the system. Right. So a perfect example is they knew that them being predominantly women made a difference. Right. That a mostly male led system, you know, was looking at them as these are hysterical, emotional, irrational women who fit the either the meek stereotype or the dragon lady and the fiery Latina stereotype. Right. Um, And the women were also very aware that their attention in part because women are nurtured and conditioned to think about our emotionality more and about the emotional needs and states of others, right? So whether they're consciously always aware that or not, they do know that more than men and in a in a more uh, capacious way than men, they're able to understand the importance of people's emotional states and their emotional needs and the need for emotional support networks, right? So they know gender is in inter- intersecting with their race, immigrant income status in those ways. Right. And that's why they were much less concerned, even for the undocumented uh, activists. Right. They were much less concerned with, oh, I want to be part of the formal political process in the U.S. and gain political empowerment that way. What they were more concerned with was We need to be emotional support networks for each other under a neoliberal system that is obviously physically and emotionally violent towards us. Okay. And physically and emotionally neglectful of us. Right. So that was how they conceived of citizenship, not as voting, not as being part of the formal electoral political system, but let's take care of each other's uh, emotional and physical needs that the state and corporate America have clearly abandoned.
0: Yeah, I was immediately thinking about the impact of emotive power. Yes. And you had this part in in the book where you're at a hearing and a Japanese-American widow comes to um, like the stand and talks about how she wasn't blaming the company, but that her husband had developed cancer after working at the oil refinery.
1: His whole life. I mean, come
0: on. And then I forget exactly who came up after and spoke.
1: Yeah. It was a Simone American teacher and she was an activist, um, fighting, uh, on a day-to-day basis for lots of different things. But one of them was, um, for, you know, a cleaner air and more regulation, right. Of the oil refineries and all the goods movement apparatus. Um, and she basically really detested the way in which these government officials who don't regulate, remember, that's part of neoliberalism, right? And these corporate officials, and in this particular case, it was BP Arco Oil, how they basically delegitimated what the Japanese American widow was saying by coming across as professional by way of an emotional detachment, right? And by way of emotional kind of management. Um, And in her view, that's emotional domination, right? Not just in terms of being cold and apathetic and uncaring in the face of this Japanese American widow suffering, but also in terms of that was one of the strategies that industry and the regulatory, quote unquote, agencies used to sustain their power, expand on their power and continue to be doing what they were doing, which was favoring industry. Right. And so what this. uh teacher did her name is I, you know, these are all pseudonyms, but I name her Cindy in the book, you know, what Cindy does is she in the middle of a very hushed understated, you know, perfunctory meeting, right? I mean she starts raging. I mean just absolutely raging. um you know, like I think I mentioned in the vignette, you know, our ears were ringing like I was probably in a stupor and I just like popped up in my seat and you know, and the reason she did that, which all of us completely understood and we'd been there, you know, is that no that actually rage and indignation and um, compassion for this Japanese American widow was the proper emotional work that we should be doing. The emotion should meet match the crime. And that crime is worthy of this rage and, and a rage that comes from sadness, right? I mean, sadness and rage often go together. Right. They're mutually constitutive. And so I thought that moment was so powerful because it showed not just the emotional domination that came from the top down. Right. But it also demonstrated how much emotional work she felt she needed to do to bring up the true political point, which was this was an absolute abomination and it was a travesty of justice. right.
0: And something that I love
1: about she ends it with saying, I'm sorry for your loss. Exactly. Exactly. Which the officials never said, right? And it's something if you're thinking, if we're really thinking about proper emotion work from the vantage of the communities and of everyday people, that would be proper emotion work, right? Which is okay. Irrespective of whether BP Arco caused the death of your widowed husband, that we should say. I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry you lost, you know, the partner, your life partner. Um, sorry for your loss. Right. But that never happens. And, and that's also another form of emotional domination that legitimates to the BPRCO and the government regulatory officials that, we didn't have anything to do with that. So we're gonna separate ourselves from that. So we don't do any emotional uh, support for you or that proper emotion work, right? So who steps into the empathy deficit? It's, you know, fellow activists, fellow community members who are suffering the same thing, who've also you know known people to have passed or who are teachers of asthmatic children every day, right? Who are also getting nosebleeds and other respiratory ailments. So to me, that's indicative of that citizenship we were talking about earlier. Citizenship is not primarily about go out and vote, right? It's primarily about taking care of your neighbor, your community member, um, you know, your fellow immigrant, refugee, person of color who are suffering precisely because of what the state and corporate America are doing, but won't acknowledge that they're doing.
0: I loved how you put it that citizenship is about ethics and care. I just
1: love that reframing of it. Exactly. And that's what they demonstrate on a daily basis, either through their activism or through just the way they take care of their community. Right. Something specific to kind of preface this is
0: you were talking about when you were still in the process of getting gathering all of your research for the book that you had mm-hmm. brought your born child into the community and they were shocked that you had done that because of the air. Yeah, and that I was just I, I thought that your statement was just super impactful. Also highlighting this idea of bio-neglect because they were yeah. afraid for your lungs.
1: Yes, exactly. And because, you know, I live in a more environmentally privileged community, it didn't even occur to me that the air could be that bad. Right. Cause I hadn't lived in air that bad. Um, and I, well, I had, maybe I hadn't organized around it. So I didn't know the depth of the information, right. And the, and the issues. So, yeah, I mean, in many ways, it goes to show that bio neglect of their communities is always on their frontal lobe in a way that it isn't for, those of us who might have to suffer to the depth and the extent that they do. Right. And that, it's it was such a, a telling moment, but also a heartbreaking moment because they all have children or have children in their lives If they don't have their own children that live in this air every single day. Right. And go to school. I talk a lot in my book about how school are hyper polluted places because schools are located in these neighborhoods or in and near this industry on these freeways. Right. Uh, and the other goods movement uh, infrastructure. And so they were so concerned about my child being in this air for a few hours, right? It it sort of exposed what we were just talking about, which is that the sense of being bio-neglected, right, by the state, by industry, by fellow Americans, right, um, was so front and center in their mental and emotional kind of lives, right, that that moment really i think cast that into relief but also as i was saying it also cast into relief the difference between the environmentally um you know marginalized and oppressed and those who are able to be more privileged um and third i think it also shows how they extended their sense of the ethics of care the politics of care that citizenship everyday citizenship they do to me, right? Even though I'm not even suffering nearly to the extent that they and their community members are. So they were enacting that citizenship towards me as like an, an ally. Right. And I just found that to be so touching and so meaningful. Right. And with regard to kind of what I mean by bio neglect, what I mean by Some of us are familiar with Foucault, who is a very complicated theorist, but I think one who has made major contributions to our understanding of the way in which the state, for example, really uses the politics of health and the body to control populations, right? Or to have their way and to exact power. So one of my critiques, though, of Foucault is Yes, I completely understand, for example, how the state disciplines prisoners, right? Um, you know, by kind of surveilling and watching all their movements and, you know, um, sort of keeping them alive, but not at an optimal level, right? We know all the controversies around all the poor medical assistance and care and the poor food right in these uh, in the prison industrial complex. Right. I understand that. Right. I understand how. Um, Um, When there are major health crises, uh, the state oftentimes has to make calculated decisions about who gets to live and who gets to die. And oftentimes um, that's either based on class and Foucault talked a little bit about race, right? That they let the racial others or the class others die so that the, the more elite people and groups can live. Right. But what I was saying is that that Foucault didn't pay attention enough to the let die process that I felt like most of his writings, focus more on how do we kind of make these populations live, even if not, if it's not at the optimal level, either so they can contribute to the labor force. Right. And we need workers. We need population to have a nation state right? (laughs) to be in the military. Right. Um, So that we're not accused of killing people in the prison industrial complex. Right. Just sort of make live, but not about letting die. And so when I was thinking about how can we center, put the spotlight on letting die, what better way to do this than a case study of environmental racism and environmental classism, right? That's a perfect example of letting die. They know that all of this, you know, refinery and goods movement pollution is slowly and prematurely killing uh, these children and these, um, and elderly and, you know, uh, Everyone else in these communities of color, these immigrant communities of color, um, and so I do kind of an update to Foucault by saying that bio neglect, uh, because because Foucault died in the early 80s, but neoliberalism, modern day neoliberalism, doesn't really start until the 80s. So he didn't have the the ability to see the way that modern neoliberalism would start and then become a runaway train the way you see it today, right? We're gutting social welfare, all kinds of social services. Uh, We're talking about getting rid of social security. You know, we don't regulate anything. If your life and my life, Karis, it's completely determined by what we do individually, the individual choices we make. And if we die or if we get sick, uh, that's really on us. Right. It's just a bio neglectful system. Right. And that's that really is uh, founded on neoliberalism, that that runaway neoliberalism that we now engage in. In the past, remember, at least we cared about, um, you know, uh, retirement and having, you know, Medicare for the elderly that were not being insured by insurance companies because they were too expensive. Right. We we were the ones that started Social Security. Security, right after the Great Depression, to make sure that you can retire after a lifetime of work, right, and be able to survive. And all that stuff is now being put on the chopping block. OK, so we have also transitioned um, from a social welfare state to one that doesn't care about it at all. Right. Uh, we used to believe in funding education better, at least, you know, for certain populations. Right now, it's like education as a system is, is being thrown to the for profit industry or to the stock market. Market, right. That's neoliberalism. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it is based on race. Right. Um, and colorblind racism. Right. So if we have colorblind racism, all oh, communities of color are not disproportionately suffering, you know, from health problems or environmental injustice or from COVID-19 even or from poor housing or a poor labor market. They're not. It's just, you know. They're just not trying hard. Uh, and they're not just doing what they need to be doing, right? So we're colorblind now. There's no racism anymore. But it's exactly that colorblind racism that allows for the gutting of the most social welfare needs and where they needed most while they're needed in communities of color, right? Immigrant communities, undocumented immigrants, right? Um, precisely because of discrimination.
0: I was thinking so much about how this ties us almost directly back to what we talked about in the very beginning. And specifically, I had gone back to another quote about when you were in these hearings, that sometimes the companies would respond with like, well, why don't you just leave? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they would often respond, if I leave, my community is still sick. My community is exactly. still in those same places. And so Mm -hmm. I contrast this hyper individualization boosted by neoliberalism so well, Mm -hmm. where instead Mm of it's about me and if I get sick or if you get sick, that's on you. That's not a me thing. It contrasts that very well and then also ties right back to our ideas about citizenship being based on care and ethics. Yes. Yeah. So not this sense that I don't care about you or I don't care if you're sick and I can get out. Right.
1: Exactly. And, and, you know, I think especially in a neoliberal system, like you said, that basically runs on individualism and hyper individualism. Right. And it's very shocking to these officials to hear that you're willing to subject yourself and your little kids to premature death, you know, and suffering from illness during the journey, right. Um, in order to stay to fight for your school kids or for your neighbor or for your family, um, I think it's quite shocking to them because it's such a different political um, and an emotional existence than what they're conditioned by and used to and privileged by. Right. Um, Like, oh, let's forget about the fact that there is like a complete climate catastrophe because it's not affecting me. Not yet anyway. Right. And that's my point about bio neglect, too, is that we need to understand that if we understand the ramifications of bio neglect, any kind of social injustice, any kind of degradation of the. Of the planet, of human and non-human nature, for profit, right, is going to come back to these elites as well. Um, obviously, people of color, women of color, suffer the most, but you know it's ultimately going to come back to them, and that's something that they don't realize because it's neoliberalism and the current moment we're in is all about instant gratification and what's going on in the now. And, you know, how can I optimize and make my life the most convenient and how can I get this and that thing, you know, this new product and, you know, but it's not about, okay, how are we all collectively being affected? Um, How do we all need to work in a network of mutuality? I mean, what is a better example than people that are completely unwilling to wear a mask, for the life to save the life of another person, including yourself, right? And so that's the moment we're in, right? And um, I, I think what's really uh, inspiring about these women, these immigrant women activists, um, and the men uh, and youth, male youth who work alongside them, right, is that that is always the starting point is the collectivist, the the sense of if we don't help each other, who's going to help us? The neglectful and violent state is BPRCO going to help us. Right. Is Wall Street going to help us? They know, you know, is a white America that doesn't suffer nearly to the extent that we do. Are they going to be our saviors? Absolutely not, right? And so they know that their survival, not just physically, but a, a life of emotional survival and emotional sort of positivity, right? Depends on them being there for each other. So am I gonna move? Absolutely not, right? Uh, even if I could maybe afford a, a lower income rental unit, maybe somewhere where the air quality is a little bit better, right? Um, but I think they also have a a longer arc uh, that they're operating within, right, which is that how is the pollution not going to come there anyway? Like, how are we going to avoid the sighting of all these uh, toxic, you know, um, sort of entities right in a neighborhood that might have slightly better air quality right now? Are we really going to avoid that? You know, Um, so, again, I think that sense of citizenship is perfectly exemplified by the unwillingness to move as well.
0: Thank you for that.
1: No Um, problem.
0: I think that kind of was a slam dunk conclusion. (laughs) 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 Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good way to end. (laughs) Was there anything that maybe we missed or a question we didn't get to get to that you'd like to highlight more from our discussion
1: just to officially wrap us up? Uh, maybe the only other thing that I would say is that even if this wasn't necessarily in the explicit articulations among the immigrant women activists, that women of color do tend to suffer even more Uh, in general, than men of color uh, in terms of environmental injustice, because it's usually women that are uh, suffering disproportionate rates of poverty, even in relation to men of color. It's women who usually are the ones who are part of home and industry. So they get the brunt of pollution from both, right? Whether those are toxic cleaning chemicals at home or they're people uh, who work as um, domestics, maids and nannies, right? In other people's homes where they're exposed to other toxins. And then, um, you know, women tend to be on the front lines of dealing with health, right? Noticing the health problems and the environmental problems first. So they tend to be more immersed in it. So women of color do um, disproportionately suffer environmental injustices. And I think that's an important way to think about the way gender is interrelated here with environmental racism and classism. Right. And the other thing I'd say is that with regard to nativist um, uh, and xenophobic injustices, right, that because in a neoliberal economy, you have the very educated and elite professionals, right, whether they're Wall Streeters, bankers, you know, Hollywood moguls, uh, lawyers, doctors, right, Uh, the people working in Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach, right, in the high tech industry, right, you always have to have uh, the low paid service. Uh, that we're only now calling essential workers, right? But we've basically been uh, derogating, right? And uh, maligning for a long time is we need those low-paid service workers, right? To, you know, do the cleaning, the caring, the restaurant work, the janitorial work, the hospital work, right? To service the higher paid, educated, professional elite, right? Well, who make up the brunt of those, um, you know, service workers, the low-paid service workers, in global cities like los angeles it's immigrants it's immigrant women and men right and so the nativist racism that's unleashed against them comes in the form both of the you know both in terms of them being disproportionately uh polluted on and contaminated, but also the way that they're the first fired, they're uh, subject to surveillance and deportation, right? Uh, They work in the most environmentally hazardous industries, okay? Whether that's slaughterhouses or construction or working amongst chemicals in microchip factories, right? In garment factories. We need to understand that that's how citizenship especially in the form of nativist racism plays out. So it's interrelated with environmental uh, injustices that way. COVID-19 is also, I have to say, has really cast this into relief, right? Because employers demanded that these immigrants, many of whom are undocumented, work in these, you know, very COVID risky labor situations, even, you know, not caring at all about their health and the fact that they might die of COVID, right? Um, you know, employers, even like individual employers, demanding that their immigrant nanny maids and gardeners come to their homes in an evacuation zone during the crazy wildfires caused by climate catastrophes. Right. Um, You know, these are forms of environmental injustice. Right. Um, You know, and no wonder they suffered much higher rates of covid hospitalization and death. Oh, and even to add a little bit more, not providing them with something basic and cheap as masks at work. Right. Um, Not you know, allowing them to distance six feet apart, not paying for health care and health benefits. Literally everything is implicated. That Those labor injustices are environmental injustices, right?
0: listening to another episode of the rage podcast to stay up to date on rage episode release information and opportunities be sure to follow our social media pages you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at the rage podcast all one word to support the rage podcast please be sure to subscribe or follow like, and share on the platform that you are listening to us on. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website, irise.du.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we will catch you next time.